Hi there, and welcome to this, the Rethinking the Human Factor podcast with me, your host, Bruce Hallis. Those of you who are new to the show, the show is all about helping the information security community raise awareness, influence behavior, and foster an appropriate organizational culture where security is truly valued. The format of the show is to basically engage with people outside of the security industry who are specialists either from a research or practitioner perspective, or maybe even a combination of the two, uh, helping other industry sectors, other disciplines to actually tackle the challenges of awareness, behavior, and culture. Because to be quite frank, the challenges that we see within the industry are challenges that many other industries, many other professions have been looking at and tackling to a degree successfully over the years. So what we wanted to do was to bring those insights in and share them with the community. Every fourth guest on the show is actually one of our listeners. It could be you. And they come on the show and they basically share with us what they've learned from the previous three podcasts, but also share some insights into their own experience of the challenges of awareness, behavior and culture. And that's what today's show is all about. If you would like to uh, come on the show and provide some insights and to share what you've learned from the previous three podcasts, then the best way for you to get in contact with us is by dropping me an email at podcast at re-thinkingthehumanfactor. That's all one word other than the dash dot com. So let me just repeat that again to you. That's podcast at re-thinkingthehumanfactor.com. Drop us an email. Let us know that you'd be interested in uh, having a chat. Tell us a little bit about yourself. And um, we will then do our best to uh, line up a call and we'll give you a call and just have a chat and see about getting you on the show. So without further ado, let's get on with the interview. And today's guest is Craig Thompson. Hello and welcome to this, the Rethinking the Human Factor podcast with me, your host, Bruce Hallis. And it's an absolute privilege today to have uh, Craig Thompson join us. Now, Craig... First time I heard of Craig, Craig probably doesn't even know this, was on holiday in France. That's right. Um, <laughs> there I was trying to get away from work and I ended up uh, getting involved in the conversation with somebody and we were talking about uh, the challenges of education and awareness. There I was trying really hard to get away from <laughs> work and, um, and they mentioned Craig. And when I returned back to the UK, uh, I was on LinkedIn and uh, then I came, uh, and I came across Craig. So... Yeah, from a, a conversation in uh, in southern France through to uh, a conversation uh, today on the podcast. And uh, so, hi, Craig. Thanks very much for joining us on the show. Hi, thanks. Thanks for asking me on. Really interested and even more intrigued now that you've just given me that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so, Craig, really, really good of you to spend uh, to take some time out of your busy day to come and um, come onto the show and share your insights and some of the thoughts you've had of the last three episodes, which were with um, Susan, Stella and Hilary. Now, before we actually start, I always ask our, our guests, you know, any of our listeners that come on the show to sort of like, just, just give us a, who are you? What is it you do? What's the journey that you've been on that sort of led you to your current role and current position? Well, um, where do I start with this one? It kind of feels as if I fell into security awareness, if I'm being honest. Um, I'm not a technical um, security expert in, in any way, shape or form, um, although I have a security background. Um, I spent almost 22 years as a as a, a Royal Marine, um, 
primarily in the training um, space and learning and development, and then moved into, when I left, moved into working with the European Space Agency and working with astronaut training. Um, so used to working very much with people who had to do things in a high-risk environment, um, really had to make sure you get the point across when you're trying to deliver training and change um, behaviours and attitudes. But then, you know, somewhere along the path, uh, I came back to um, came back to the UK from working at the space agency and and found the current role, which is in security awareness. I mean, I, I mean, I remember when IT first came in, and from, from my perspective of IT and computing, um, I just thought, great, I've got PowerPoint, I can create something that's engaging and from a training and visual perspective, um, instead of having to do the juggle of using overhead projectors and videos and slides. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, were you using those um I, I still remember this uh with the projector you had those like cardboard pieces and then there was like a almost like a piece of perspex and you used to draw everything on the piece of perspex which went in the cardboard and then you put that up on the projector turned it on and then it would throw it up on the wall were you using that type of yeah. material yes it was and um very very particular techniques for using the overhead projectors to make sure that the shadows were the right way around when when you were using them and that the reveal wasn't too early so that people weren't reading too much before they're supposed to see it. And yeah, a little bit more technical and a little more to it than you'd probably think. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, that's even with simple assets, you, you've got to know how to use those assets. You've got to know the strengths of the asset and then the weakness, and then you've got to design your processes and how you, I guess, as a person that's presenting, whether it's just a you know, pure present, presentation or some form of training, You've got to know how to do that. And the reveal, you know, if you suddenly put everything up on the on the projector, yeah, you lose people because they're reading through all the other stuff and you want them to concentrate on point one, don't you? So, yeah, you, yeah. It's, it's experience and experience counts. But however, sadly, that seems to have been lost now with PowerPoint because everyone just uses it. <laughs> everyone just uses it as a, uh, I say everyone, that's that's a broad brush. But um, yeah, a good majority of people just put all their... Uh, things that they want to say on the screen and just stick it up there and then they've lost the audience straight away because they're too busy reading point five instead of listening to point one. Yeah. <laughs> You've come from quite a diverse background there. I mean, you know, with the, the, the armed forces and the Royal Marines, the L and D side, I just want to explore this a bit because I've got a connection with, with the armed forces and, um, and I just noticed actually uh, the particular regiment that my dad was in, they just started putting, there's a program back on the TV um, or TV, online, TV, whatever. Um, and, and they're talking about going, the recruitment process. And actually, it, well, I think there's no problem showing with people. So, you know, this is the parachute regiment. And um, I remember many, many years ago, uh, there was another program about the parachute regiment, um, about junior company. And, um, and it's interesting seeing the difference now between the, the sort of teaching, learning, develop, learning, developing these these people um sort of instructing them on their behaviors and getting some quite stressful circumstances and i remember the old program and i look at the new program and you could sort of there's there's a string of commonality through it all but there's quite different approaches do you think that you've seen that when you when you're sort of within the armed forces that things have developed in terms of how you train people whether they be the recruits or or, or right at the top of the chain yeah absolutely absolutely i mean you know, we, we can go we can go back to the time of saying when I joined up and then when the, my predecessors joined up, it was a different approach and the times evolve and we, we, we use different techniques. And thankfully, it's um, 
It's an intelligent organisation. A lot of people would think that they have the stereotypical armed forces picture in their mind of somebody standing on the edge of the parade square shouting and telling you to do it until you got it right. Mm. Um, sometimes there's an element of that included, if I'm being honest, from memory. Yeah. Um, but um, it, it's a very much more an intelligent organisation now. And um, it, the approaches that are used are far different. You know, it, it's it's more about... It's a realisation, actually, from the organisation and from the trainer's perspective that the, their job is to train people. It's easy to get rid of people. Uh-huh. It's, easy to, it's easy to make people fail. But actually, your job isn't about that. It's about trying to get people through it and trying to actually make sure that they can do what it is that you want them to do. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it's taken a very scientific approach over the last few years. It really has. Well, I guess one of the things, you know, getting good people to sign up is a challenge. I mean, the, the competing, you know, there are opportunities other than the armed forces. I know one of the, the, one of the challenges that the, that the armed forces found was how do we get the right people to sign up? And then once you, you've invested in doing that, and I think um, in the UK they actually outsource that contract to somebody to actually help try and pull more, more um, potential recruits into the pipeline, uh, you don't want to lose them. It's an investment. You've already made the investment, getting them to, to, to sign up to, to doing something, and you then want to make the most of that commitment. So, yeah, it's flipping the coin around and saying, look, it's, this is about retaining people, but, but developing them so that, that we, we can retain them justifiably and maintain our standards within, within the armed forces. Um, yeah, so y- y- you want to protect that investment. Going on to the, um, to the next one. So space travel. I've just taken the children last weekend to the UK's uh, space centre. <laughs> um, and so it's getting quite topical. And I've never met anybody that's actually done any training within the context of space. What is it? What, what, what was it you were actually doing there? Uh, so are you talking about from uh, okay so probably the best way to put it is um so one of the my experience of it was the european space agency had historically sent its astronauts out to to work with nasa right. and you may remember um, astronauts like pierre sellers and helen mm. Sharman, have you who, who who had been to space but they went um badged with the stars and stripes on their arm as it were yeah um they wanted to actually put their own astronauts from Europe through training um, and send them up into space um, with their own with their own nation's flags on their arms. So mm-hmm. wanted to basically develop something that they could actually use initially and then continue to use um, as they go forward. So but luckily they decided to do that just at the time I was leaving the armed forces and um, right place and right time. And very, very fortunate. Um, I still consider myself to be very fortunate to have had time working with them. And it was looking at delivering a baseline of training topics to all of the recruits. And it seems strange calling them recruits, but to all of the astronaut candidates to bring them to a baseline level some were pilots, some were ex-military, some were commercial pilots, and some were scientific. So it was about getting them all to a baseline in the space fundamentals and life sciences and and what you'd expect. But thereafter, and concurrent with that going on from a, from a, a experience of what I had, was we had ongoing training going for the astronauts that were going up to the International Space Station. Right. Who were on a who were basically going up for a six month mission, mm-hmm. uh, 
he did specific training that was um, relevant to the task they were going to perform when they when they were on board. Yeah, I, you, when you talk about that, and you sort of illustrate it in that way, the, you know, the whole idea of having a baseline, and then you have people that you know, then you have different levels of training for people that was almost progressing through the the, the overall program. So it sort of reminds me of the the, the idea, the argument within cyber anyway the whole idea that everybody's got to you know we've got to have a baseline for everybody within the organization these are the common lessons that um and takeaways and skills that everybody needs to have and then we need to be thinking about how our program you know focuses more upon the specific requirements of of groups of individuals or individuals um and 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 do have you found that that sort of uh, that what you did there at the european space agency is there's a natural Okay, it's baseline, build upon, doing something similar in your in, in your current line of work. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and you know what? It, 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 it's almost as if it fell into place um, from a, a a program approach. Um, you could say by accident, but I think it's actually just a natural from experience. It's just a natural way to go um, when you look at military and then you look at the space. And, and then you look at learning and development as such when you're looking at an, an audience or an organization. It's let's get the basics right. Mm. You know, let's, let's go back to basics. Let's make sure we get the fundamentals right across the organization. And, and then let's focus on doing the more specific, more technical aspects um, for our different audiences, for our high risk audiences. Um, and, and, you know, it, it always comes back to you can design the most amazing building, house, structure, whatever it is, and, and you can build it as high as you want. But it, if you haven't got the foundations right for that building, it's going to topple and it's going to be wasted investment and wasted time. So, yeah, I think it absolutely is from experience. It's it's the approach that I would endorse. And it's, an, it's the approach that we actually take at your current employment. So <laughs> that leads on nicely. <laughs> Are, are you are you are you cool with mentioning um, who it is, what your current role is, and who it's with? Or you can just mention one and not the other. So <laughs> let the audience know who is uh, who's benefiting from from all that experience. Oh, absolutely, um, I was very fortunate um, to find the the role of the security education awareness manager at Nationwide Building Society. Uh, it was one of those things that when I, I'd left the military and I had to say I'd had different other jobs, um, it, it, one of, the, uh, one of the, the transitional issues is trying to find not only the job that you can do, but actually working for an organization that's got values that you can connect with. And Nationwide is a really good employer to work for. Mm-hmm. That's, not, that's not a punt, but if anybody wants to take it, they, <laughs> they, can, they can look at the website. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's really interesting because culture is a big piece of, of what I do, and understanding the role of values within culture, and then actually finding an organisation where you have shared values. Now, for our listeners in the UK, they're probably familiar with the concept of a building society, uh, and in the US they might be. But a building society, just can you briefly explain? Because a building society is definitely different from a bank, even though quite a few of the services are quite similar. So, could you just quickly, what's a building society? Um, and what, why is it different to a bank? And the easiest way to put it and the way we focus on it is the fact that the building society is a mutual and that mutual, uh, all the so-called customers um, from from a bank's perspective um, are members when you look at it from a mutual and a, a building society's perspective. So actually, if you have savings or you have a mortgage or you have a current account as things have progressed now, then 
you are a member of the organization and therefore um, you you are not considered to be a customer where you are picking up an end product mm. but actually the, the the benefits of of you doing your business with that organization are actually going to somebody else now the benefits of a building society are that actually the money that you invest generally comes back to you is there anything within the building site, you know, discussions to go on, which sort of like highlights the difference between being a member of something and being a customer? And I asked this specifically, people go, where's Bruce, where's Bruce going with this? But I often think about... I think I know where you're going. Right. Okay. In which case, rock and roll. Go with it. <laughs> I think we're probably looking at the fact that people have got vested interest. They feel as though they're part of an organization they feel as if they they can they can benefit from being a part of that and instead of just going to a bank and depositing your money and getting loans and getting your mortgage and all the rest of it and your money goes out and you're getting a service from a bank um, that you don't generally have much say in how it does its business when you go to a building society you you've almost got the opportunity to have your say and get, put your piece in. Go along to um, events where you have the opportunity where you're invited to come and have your say and talk to the senior leadership team. And, um, you know, you, you are rewarded for loyalty that you, when you put in put in your, your money that you actually get extra benefits and, and better rates coming back to you. So it, it it's kind of that same connection with security awareness that actually if... yeah. And, I think that's probably what you were looking yeah, for. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, when, that's really, really when, good. Yeah, when that's... you get that vested interest, when you've got that vested interest from from all people within the organisation, then what you're looking at there is you're looking at a mutual. It, it, it's a two-way It's a two-way process whereby actually if you work together, you will get the benefit for each. And you, you'll get and actually – it, it connects with um, one of the things I picked up going through the last three podcasts were quite a few of the things in there that relate to how we can be more effective um, and how we can be better at what we do. Um, and I always harp that back to my experience from leadership and management and, and to Stephen Covey and his effective habits or the habits of effective people. And one of those is about think win-win. Uh, you, if you're if you're in that mutual um, organisation, are they in that mutual um, agreement? Mm. You are going to think win-win, and if you're going to think win-win, you're going to be more effective, and you're going to get better output. So, I, th- I think that's where. You, tell me if I'm wrong. I think that's where you were headed. No, no, absolutely. I need to, and that's th- yeah, and that's absolutely where I was going with that, with the sense of. You know, do people feel different if they've got something in the game? You know, I mean, um, from a, a, a sort of, I guess, from the sort of cognitive biases and heuristics type of perspective, what you're, we're starting to talk about is if somebody's contributed to something, if they've, you know, if they've invested in some in some way, they feel that they've contributed to something, they're going to value it potentially more than it's actually worth even. I mean, that's not saying that that's the case with mutual building societies at all. There's a sense of, I think when I did the interview with Dan a little while ago now, we were talking about the IKEA effect where, you know, when you when you build something yourself, you tend to value it more than when if somebody else built it yeah. um, because it's you've invested in it. Um, and then there's other things like the endowment effect. You know, again, it's, it's about how you've invested into something. 
Um, but it, you mentioned there about what you've started taking away from the last few podcasts. Do, do you want to just, just sort of explain, I guess, some key points that you've taken? I'll jot them down and then we can sort of explore those a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, there was quite a few. I mean, there's some great podcasts. As I say, um, I potentially should have should have found out about um, the podcasts and the network a little bit sooner than I did. But um, I'll probably put that down to the fact that I've been too busy racing around trying to actually make <laughs> a difference, trying to make a difference um, yeah. whilst having a steep learning curve in the IT world. Um, it's it, uh, some really good connections in there um, that I made. And thankfully, thankfully, they also fit along with the approach that, that we take as well. But, um, you know, you, you talked about, you know, how people have got that, in, that vested interest and how using the people within the organization to help shape and form what it is that we have as policies and processes so that they actually work. Um, and it really means that people will... Um, like you say, the IKEA effect, they will buy into it. Mm. You know, I remember one of Covey's uh, effective principles was seek first to understand. And uh, and, and that's right. You know, you, you, if you go out to people and, and try and understand from their perspective, what is it about policies and processes that they don't understand or that they do understand but can't affect, you know, what's the blocker for that? You know, what's what's creating what's potentially the cognitive dissonance between what they know they should be doing but actually what they actually are doing or i found that really interesting and thankfully it's one of the things that we we started to dedicate a lot more time and effort to where we are do you think you you going down that particular route because of it's um it's it's just it's just your experience or you know when you're looking at at designing these you know education and awareness sort of i guess there's a program and then there's individual initiatives do you think that understanding that behavioural context, because you were talking there about design, I mean, really, you know, engage with the stakeholders to develop policy, it's almost like a design process, you know, engage with your customer to design the product. Yeah. And if you don't engage with your customer, the product that comes out at the end of it, the process, which then you as the education awareness manager are sort of responsible for, um, for trying to embed within the organisation... And, and change people's behavior, behaviors you know it makes it a lot lot harder if you haven't had people involved in designing the product and then you try selling them the product in effect um not, not a financial exchange but you're selling in, t- in terms of the sense of their time to take part in the training their effort the, uh, the, uh, to to remember it and then basically when they've got to actually choose to comply they're making a disc in many respects are making a discretionary effort they yeah of course they said they should comply we know that people don't always comply so did you find that that engagement makes a difference for you as the education and awareness manager you know to get that job done and to achieve you know the goals that have been set for you yeah i mean it, it's isn't it it's, isn't about training and delivery um of awareness activity about making sure that you really target and make it real to the people that you're delivering to it's um it's about understanding what that need is. I've already mentioned about talking, talking about the basics and getting the foundations right. But then when you start to look at different areas and, and what their need is, it's, it's looking at actually, well, why have we got an area that isn't potentially doing what it is that we want them to do? Um, 
So you've got to go out and identify what that is. And that comes from engagement. Now, there are different ways of doing engagement and all organizations have it as a real challenge. Um, whether you put it out as a survey and people say, don't use the word survey. So we talk about a culture change and have your say, feed into it. We can call it what we want, but at the end of the day, we need to engage with the people within the business who we want to take on board the information that we need them to take on board to make it more safe and secure. And it comes back again to one of the points that Susan did highlight, um, I remember, when she was talking about you know, better design to work with um, the the process that you put in place. And it's, it, it's almost like saying, well, you know, this is what the policy says, but actually, you know, you can imagine talking to somebody when they first come on board and, and you can imagine that conversation that goes on and says, well, you know what, this is what the policy says. This is what the process says. But you know what? This is what we actually do in real life. Mm. This, is, this is what we do. This is the way we do it. And, you know, I can, I can recall personal experience back in my previous um, careers where we've done exactly that. You know, you, you look at something and say, well, this is what the book says. But you know what? When push comes to shove in real experience, this is what you do. So it's because that process, that theory hasn't been designed and developed close enough with the operational experience or hasn't taken into consideration the other operational factors that create the, the, the confusion in your colleague's mind, mm. which creates that dissonance, that piece of, wait a minute, I've got two different things that I need to, to focus on here. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know which one takes priority. So you mentioned there about cognitive dissonance. This is the difference between, um, you know, what the policy says in a way and what, what people actually do. And in that, you sort of, I guess your root cause analysis for that is that, um, you know, the policy was, wasn't designed with the user in mind. Um, and so it's great it comes out on paper, but actually um, things don't change on the ground because the, it, it's almost like the policy can't be implemented what impact does that have? Then? I mean, that might be just one policy. What impact might that have in terms of how people interpret the broader range of policies that you, you as education and awareness manager are responsible for implementing? Does it, does it create a barrier? You know, as soon as you put, you know, as soon as you put, what, create one situation of non-compliance because of policy and real life just, just don't match up at all. You know, does that then infect the rest? You know, is it like the bad apple in the cart that affects the rest of them? Yeah, it can do. It, it, it's uh, and it's about it's about are we creating a conflict um, with what we're asking people to do? And the old memory comes back to me when I'm thinking about what you were discussing with Louise, and it was about that security culture piece, and actually. Do we want a security culture or do we want an organizational culture that values security? Uh, and it's it's about we security is not the be all and end all of an organization. It's it's there to provide a service. So when you have um, conflict of do I need to provide a good service or do I need to make sure that I'm being secure? then one takes priority over the other because that's what we do. We make a cognitive decision as to which one takes priority, especially when we're under stress and we're under pressure. Mm -hmm. um, and I think actually if we can create processes collaboratively 
And that's not just looking at them in isolation from a security perspective, but actually looking at how that works with the operational processes and how transformation into the business thinks about its impact on all of those things. And we work together, then we create processes and controls that people can actually follow and that they've actually had the opportunity to feed into because they're giving it to us from their experience of what it is they need to do, where the the impact is going to be, uh, and where it is they're going to be at conflict, where, where it is that they're going to have to make a decision and do something that's over and above or outside of the guidelines that we set from the security perspective. So, yeah, it really is that whole piece about trying to make sure that it, it's all tied in together yeah. and that we, that we don't create that that, that um, cognitive dissonance and that, and that conflict in, in the uh, – in the, in the, I don't like using the term end user, but you know, in in the in our colleagues' minds, we don't want to do that. Yeah, it's interesting because it sort of highlights one of the ways to um, change behaviour is to reduce any friction. So if you if people are currently doing A and you want them to do B, but the process of moving from A to B is is full of friction, people just don't want to don't want to pursue that. The, the way you design that sort of change across should be should be taking that friction perspective in, in in mind. Just make it as easy as possible for somebody to move from A to B. And then, you know, earlier we, we were sort of talking almost about the motivations, about what's in it for me. So that, you you know, you mentioned the two-way process and, it's, you know, this is the benefit to us as an organisation from you taking following the security policy, but what's in it for the other party? Combine that then with, okay, actually you or your department or your business function in some um has been involved in the in the design of this process that i'm now we're now training you upon and asking you to comply with and you start to add these things up and it for me that's when you then start to to shift the balance in your favor that people will actually choose to 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 comply with that policy and you know, I think that what you're just describing is almost like a little bit of an arc. And you know, I'm seeing a small improvement here, improvement here, improvement here, and you're like, okay, this all eventually pushes the dial in the right direction in terms of how people, the chances that people are going to comply. Yeah, I, I, I think it comes back to also to the fact that you know people are generally good, are generally good in, in principle, and they, and they they want to do the right thing. Um, yes, and it's been discussed in some of your previous podcasts that um, the human, the human is not is not fallible, um, and we often will take the the easy route or we'll take the the, the non conflicting route. But generally, they will do the right thing. Um, mm. So if we don't do the right thing, and then we need to consider it, why is it that people aren't doing the right thing? And and nine times out of ten, it's either because of we haven't created. Um, we haven't given them the knowledge and the skills and the, the tools that they need to do it, or we've created some form of conflict that prevents them from doing it. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you, you know, in your experience, what, what what is it that motivates people to actually, well, you could either think it was give up their time to engage with the, with awareness initiatives or invest it, it depends on which side of the coin you, you want to choose. Um, but what is it that motivates people, what, what in your experience, to take part? in the first place? Um, I, I suppose we're all different, aren't we? And everyone has different motivators and, and what's a reward for one person isn't for another. Um, and what's what's considered to be an unpleasant outcome of, of an activity for, for one person is completely different to another as well. So I think generally we do things 
oh, we'd like to think that people will do things because it's the right thing to do. Um, and and that's, that, for me, has always been the focus uh, of trying to get behaviour change, is making people understand it's the right thing to do. Clearly, in different organisations, and specifically in the finance industry, um, there are regulations. There are, there's, a, there's a need to do it from a regulatory and legal perspective. But if you can get people to buy, buy into the, the, the need to do it because it's the right thing to do, yep. and, we can, we, and we can do that by... We can do that by storytelling, you know, making sure that we give people the the real stories of how doing the right thing impacts on the right on on our members, for instance, in, mm. in our case. Um, but also, actually, how by doing the wrong thing, whether it be intentional or not, how the wrong thing can really have a massive impact on somebody's life. Um, and this isn't just about how they can get their money or how they can't get their money. It can have an absolute influential um, impact on their life. And it might sound a little bit extreme, but it, it can be, especially when we start talking about data protection. Um, so I, I think for some people, it's about trying to make sure you know what their driver is before you try and deliver that story, which gets the emotional um, connection to then get them to do what it is that you want them to do. So part of awareness then is um, it's not just about making your, your audience aware. It's also awareness is a, a two-way street, isn't it? It's about you as the education and awareness manager being aware of your, of your audience. You know, what are the stories that are going to be more compelling, more engaging for them? You know, something you mentioned earlier in the interview is, you know, understanding, you know, if the policy is this and people's behaviour is that, then why is that understanding the root cause rather than just trying to push back, just use the same process, whatever you've done before to, to make people aware of the policy. Awareness is two ways, isn't it? And I think that's interesting because a lot of the conversation I see is that often awareness is pitched as this will make the audience aware of our, of our policies, their roles and responsibilities. But could it be said that actually awareness is just as much about actually being aware ourselves of who our target audience is? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and it's about, um, and it, it comes back to that piece of, I um, Stella talked about it from a learning and development perspective, about setting out from the outset what you what it is that you're trying to achieve uh, and setting out what your plan is. And, be, and it kind of comes back to COVID, um, with beginning with the end in mind. It's, we, we need to know what it is that we're trying to achieve. But in order to do that, we need to know what it is that we need to focus on. So, yeah, you absolutely need to engage with different parts of the business um, mm. and and all our users of IT um, and our service providers um, and staff within the organisation to understand what it is that they're doing and what it is that the, the, the risks are to them. Yeah. And this is the point. It's the risks. We all do things that... We all do things that could have an impact, but actually, what are the risks to that individual and what are the risks to the business Yeah. so that you... You deliver something. And if sometimes we don't fully understand what the operational process is, we might understand, we might think we believe we understand the impact of security and good security behaviors on a business area. But actually, if we don't understand the systems that they're using and the processes that they're, that they're using, then potentially we're not going to get it right in the first place. So, yeah, we do have to understand what it is that they're doing mm. and where they see 
the conflict and the issues yep. so that we can actually develop an effective programme. So it is, you know, for, it's almost like a market research piece, isn't it? Um, and, you know, the whole idea of understanding your market, your target audience and conducting those research activities. You mentioned their surveys and obviously you can name it. People use different names for basically the same mechanism for gathering information. Um, and I'm just wondering whether or not you've got any experience and feelings around gathering information. Surveys, the natural one, it makes a sense from an economic perspective. But, you know, what are the weaknesses of surveys, you know, and... Uh, in all the work that I do, often survey comes out as the, the first natural response. We'll, we'll survey them. But, you know, a lot of my work has identified that, you know, there are some great times to use surveys, uh, but there are also some times where, you know, surveys um, aren't necessarily going to bring you the results. So I just wondering what your experience of that market research is, how you've done that in the past. Surveys, workshops, what were the lessons that you learned from that? Um, the, the survey is a, it, it is a good tool, but sadly, with with a survey, we're all surveyed constantly, day in day out. You go and buy something, and before you know it, you get an email saying, "How do we do?" You, yeah. you you go and have your tires changed, and then you get a text message saying, "How do we do?" We're going to send you a few more messages, and we're we're almost at the point of saturation with surveys, and and we've so much to do in our lives that people don't want to open them, and it, and if they do with the best of intentions, they open it up and they see a survey that's got 200 questions. <laughs> they're not going to answer them. Yeah. Uh, and actually, people haven't potentially stopped to think about what what do I want to be able to affect a change in when I get my survey results? So actually, what are the key things I want to focus on? And actually just creating it down to a few key areas rather than asking questions for the sake of questions. So... Of course, you also then have corporate issues as to whether or not you can deliver that survey and whether you can reach your audience. But sometimes it's it's a different approach to actually look at trend analysis on, like, let's say, instant reports and identify that you are starting to see a trend where you've got an issue that you need to do a deep dive on. Mm. And then that gives you a more focused audience to go and talk to. And actually, then you can try and sell that more as a case of we've noticed this so therefore would you like to talk to us about it we'll come face to face instead of having that survey piece where people have got to click on a link and that open up all the, the questions they're actually having a face to face which helps build that trust element that you need as well with across the business um and we found in in, in the past that actually doing face to face workshops and trying to get feedback from people is really useful yeah and I think it's that it's that one to one, isn't it? It's you know pretty much everything is based upon human relationships, or it has been in the past. Uh, the, the the whole thing about trying to automate discussion, relationship building um, with machines is is something that's obviously it's, it's been a hot topic for quite some time now. And I sometimes I do wonder, you know, will the machine will, will you develop a relationship with with a machine? Um, so that the machine can be just asking the questions and gathering the information, interpreting your answers, that type of thing going forward. But in the meantime, that does, in, in my experience, that face-to-face, whether it's one-to-one or with a group of people, as long as the group isn't too big, um, and the person doing... And actually, this is important as well. I think the person who's facilitating the, the workshop has got to have the right attributes and qualities. Absolutely. 
Yeah, because I think what you're talking about is that that whole piece about trust and building trust and having that two-way conversation. And you know, is when when you're talking to somebody, do you consider them to be credible and reliable? Um, and, and and actually, although they might be positive attributes, and you look at the negative that could completely outweigh that is self-interest. And if it's clear to somebody that they're going into a fact-finding mission, mm-hmm. let's call it, so that one individual can go away and have gotten from that that discussion exactly what they want, then if they get a sense that that's what they're there for, and yeah. it's not actually, I've been an opportunity to feed into this and give my say yeah. as a collaborative approach, then they're going to shut down. They're just going to think, well, you're just here just to look after yourself and to just find, find out what you want to deliver, yeah. uh, potentially to tick a box or to impart on me what I don't want to hear in the first place. So, absolutely you've got to have those soft skills and again those soft skills are as we've we've talked about before you know that they're becoming more evident now that they're needed within the security industry because um it it really is key that we can make that connection and we can build those relationships yeah can i ask a question um feedback loops often we we run workshops and we invite people and say look this is your opportunity to come and share your experiences, what you like, what you don't like, all those stuff. So we create these workshop environments. We get people away from the desks. They invest their time. And it's sort of, you know, the workshop comes to an end. The person that's facilitated it then pulls all the information together. So it's sort of a reflection of, of what you just said there. How important is it to give feedback to those attendees? You've gone away with those. They've given you a whole range of uh, of uh, justifications, motivations behind why they don't comply with policy X, even though they've been trained on it and they've passed a competency, competency assessment. How important is that, you know, giving feedback? Extremely, extremely. And if you think about it, if somebody was to ask your opinion and they went off and if they, if somebody was to ask your opinion on, on um, what they wanted to do and you gave your opinion, they went off and, and actually changed their own mind and thought, no, I'll, I'll go with Bruce's. I'll go with Bruce's advice. I, and they did what you asked them to do. You you wouldn't necessarily know that they're doing it because of that. You could maybe make a connection and say, oh, I, I suggested that, but you wouldn't be able to have that reinforced um, approval to yourself that actually, do you know what? I gave that advice. They listened and they did it. Mm. So, Maybe I'm actually, maybe my maybe my comments are worth something. Maybe I can actually feed into this, and somebody will listen. So maybe it is worthwhile me feeding back and providing that information. Whereas if you if you don't make sure that people are aware that, and we use a process of you know you said and we did that they they will they will just shut down. They will say, well, what's the point of actually making a comment if if it doesn't get taken on board? Hmm. So, and again, it comes back to that piece about investment. They feel that they've got an investment in what's going on because they've helped shaped um, the, the change. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, um, so, one of the things that Stella mentions, and uh, and, and I sort of, I guess, I refer to quite a lot, is um, how doing the learning environment that we uh, and the difference between a learning environment and the actual environment where you're going to then have to remember what it is that you've been taught and then act upon it. And I thought 
with your background, I was particularly interested because, <clears throat> you know, going back to um, your time in the armed forces, the impact of stress in a given situation, um, you know, it's quite well understood now, the impact of stress upon the brain's ability to, to think things through. And, uh, you know, other podcasts that we've had, and I know definitely with, uh, with Susan's podcast as well, you know, we talked about, you know, when you get into that stress situation, how it, it's then fight or flight, which so moving to a particular system within the brain. And that system has shortcuts, these heuristics, et cetera, which sort of overpower the, the cognitive reasoning side of things. And just wondering, in your experience there, was that your experience when you were sort of within the the armed services that sort of trying to train people you can train them in the classroom you can train them uh, you know out doing field craft etc um but how do you train them in such a way so that when they're actually in the heat of it okay that they're still recollecting this stuff they're they're still acting upon that and i'm just wondering whether or not there is that difference because I, I sometimes wonder, you know, how we train people, the environment that we train people in, is that a true, is that a reflection of the environment where people are going to be making decisions and what difference does that make? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes all the difference. Um, and it's, and it's um, from a, a training perspective, if you can, if you can create the environment in which you want people to behave, then you, it gives you the ability to actually observe them in that environment and be confident that that's what's going to happen. But it also allows the individual to know that they are able to do that. They can make that self-assessment. They can make that self-judgment that they've been asked to do something in a certain environment, they've done it, and therefore they know that they can do it. And that gives them an awful lot of self-confidence. If you're teaching somebody the theory or this is what you should do in a certain situation, if they haven't experienced that situation, it's really difficult for them, one, to build up the the effective habit of doing that over and over because practice, practice, practice reinforces the the, the behaviour that you want them to do. Yeah. So if we can't do that because we don't have a specific scenario or a situation, then what we're really doing is relying on their cognitive ability to understand the situation that you're giving them, that you're telling them that it, where it is necessary for them to behave. Now, we can all do that and we can, with a clear mind, can say, okay, in that situation, I understand that this is what I'm supposed to do. If I haven't been practiced and practiced and practiced in that environment and in those conditions, then my brain won't automatically do something, or my brain won't automatically get me to do something as formal as a habit. And therefore, we're relying on people to actually stop and think about it. Yeah. And and this is where there's a real challenge because if we want people to stop and think, that is assuming they've got the time to stop and think. Uh-huh. Yeah. If if they haven't got this time to stop and think, and you talked earlier about um, the stresses and the pressures of the, the workplace, there are modern stresses and pressures full stop. But then when we add in the journey to work, then we add into coming into work and finding that your IT won't log on properly. Then there's not being able to pull up your work so that you can get it finished for the deadline. Then you've got some, your boss shouting at you from one angle and then from another angle. You are building up workplace stress that will then affect your decision making. That mm. 
that stress can almost be overcome when you have done something over and over and over again in that condition yeah. in which to react. If you haven't had the, the benefit of being able to practice it and practice it in those same conditions, then there is a possibility that you won't actually do what it is that you know you're supposed to do, but you will revert to the easy route. And that's not from a, a lazy perspective. That's because actually it's you're potentially going into your your flea mode. You've got your fight, flight, and flea mode. You, yeah. you potentially might go into your flea mode of, of saying, I'm not doing that, or I'm not doing that because it's confrontational. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, and, I, and humans want to go for the non-confrontational approach. So it's, yeah, I suppose it's really, really difficult to get people to do what it is you want them to do if you haven't had an opportunity to practice it in that environment. So, yeah, the environment and the conditions at which you want someone to do something is really, really valuable. So, you know, with that, the idea of practice, 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 um, I guess, would it be sort of, I get your philosophy that the more exposure you can get to the um, to, to employees or whoever the stakeholder is that you're responsible for helping them sort of up the game when it comes to information security, that you need as much exposure as possible. And and if that is so, I guess, your philosophy, how do you sort of deal with the challenge of, you know, the pushback we get, we all get from business, whether it's information security or any other business function that's trying to train people, is that we've only got a limited amount of time. It's sort of, you sort of seem to be stuck between the ocean and deep blue sea in the sense that, oh, here we go, you've got one session a year, you've got one slot a year to, to deliver your training because of all the other training that's taking place and how the business feels comfortable with releasing people from the front line, driving business, delivering business, doing the training piece. But actually, in your mind, you need to be doing this as regularly as possible. You know, I, I can only assume, and I, I'm pretty pretty sure I'm accurate on this one, that that's a, that's a challenge that you've always faced. Um, and and how, how do you have that discussion with the business to say, well, we need more time so that I can actually help form these habits? Yeah, <laughs> it's you're right. It, it's it's an absolute challenge. Um, when you consider that security is only one aspect of what people need to be doing in their operational day to day business, it's trying to get their time to do any training or any engagement or awareness activity. Um, is, is time taken away from what, what it is they're there to do? Um, and when other parts of the business are implementing their policies and um, their awareness of what it is they want people to do, it becomes a real challenge. I think we've all fallen into the, the category now of we deliver a one-stop um, shop that covers all of our security messages yeah. through, through e-learning. And, and partly because it is a, it is a, a useful tool but actually, it's it's effective at reaching a lot of people in different locations at the same time. Yeah. Yes, it allows us. It then also allows us to then demonstrate compliance, and we can say yes, we've delivered the training that we need to deliver that has been asked for from a compliance and scheme perspective. But it's only we, we should only focus on that one. Um, and I say should. It, it, it would be more effective if people were to use that as a delivering the key messages, and then following that up continuously throughout the year with reinforcement, um, continuing that message. So we haven't got the opportunity to practice, 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 and we can't get more time. So what we do is deliver our key messages in a one one hit 
Yeah. But then reinforce that, continue to reinforce it throughout the year and, and at particular key times throughout the year yeah. uh, when we want people to be doing that behaviour. Have you ever sort of, um, something that uh, I, I did some, some time ago, but it seemed to be quite unusual, was instead of having my own education and awareness initiative campaign, I just piggybacked off everybody else's. <laughs> to know what? It's not a bad idea. Um, and the reason I say it's not a bad idea is because none of us have got the perfect solution. And one of the most valuable things I've found about being in the education awareness from a security perspective, the network, uh, through your podcast, through the the summits that we go to regularly, is we're all doing the same thing. And, it, and it's relatively relatively, and I say relatively new, there's the discussion about the fact that IT has been around for a long time and we've been doing IT security for a long time, but there seems to be a real initiative now on on security awareness. And and talking to peers, we're all in the same boat. Um, and when you talk to somebody else and you say, this is what I'm doing, and they say, oh, that's a great idea. I hadn't thought of that. Do you know, we're doing this. And you think, oh, no, that's a good idea. And <laughs> But Bartomey's even had a thought about saying, well, actually, do you know what? We all have the same challenges, especially from a manpower perspective across the industry. Mm. Uh, trying to deliver what we're trying to deliver is get, getting a getting a joint approach where we say, right, if you focus on this this year and I'll focus on that, yeah. at the end of it, we'll swap. And then we've got something that's built for purpose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think this is one of the, the you know, I think commendable activities from people like Sands, for example. I think they 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 were uh, they were ahead of the other major stakeholders, you know, in this industry. For me, ISACA, ISC squared, etc. Um, around this, this this human factor piece and recognizing the challenges that is it is new. I mean, my personal view on this, and love your thoughts. Awareness, behavior, and culture aren't unique to cybersecurity. You know what area of life doesn't involve raising awareness to influence behaviour, and there's an element of considering considering the role of culture in 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 doing that, and that's one of the things we do with the show. That's why we invite you know we go out there to engage with people um, who do awareness, behaviour, and culture, but do it in a different context to cyber. And this is about the lessons that you can learn by just listening to other people. And, yeah. you know, you can and, the, and you, what you just given there is the lessons you can learn by listening to your peers. And it's about finding places where those peers are sort of uh, um, gathering and exchanging ideas. And then, yeah, you, and, and having this information sharing thing that um, that goes on. And yeah, and, and people coming up with ideas. And these are, that's un, that's unusual. I mean, one of my favorite ideas for influencing behavior because nearly every project I got involved with in my early days around governance, risk, and compliance was pretty much driven by, um, we're going for this tender, <laughs> okay? Um, we need to be ISO 27001, or we need to make sure, we've got to make assurances around data protection or, you know, whatever it was, you know, any of the standards which are, which are out there. And then suddenly that would be a, mo- mo- a motivation and provide momentum to actually doing something can argue the pros and cons about whether or not they got it just as a tick box or not that's that's another issue but it was the connection with money for business mm. one of the things i found really really successful around third party policy so this is about trying to embed the the third party policy getting people to think about um what are the risks associated with this great idea that we've got before you get to the point so in, instead of getting to the 
we've engaged a supplier to deliver X. Now, you know, now security function. Could you just have a look at the security side of it? Can you just get this signed off? I'd actually, the thing that I did, it was just one of the most effective piece of behavioral change I did. I, I made sure that um, the, the budget approval for departments, okay, involved the finance function asking questions about, okay, so you want to do X, Y, and Z this year. Where's your risk assessment? In, in relation to information security, and over this over this eighteen month period, I remember them seeing the country. The number of pushbacks they got was was pretty significant. Where people went, oh, we haven't done this yet. But when they started to realise that money would only come when it was done, <laughs> it really, really changed. By the end of a year and a half, everything that was coming through in terms of a, a request for budget, okay, they they weren't seeing anybody that was saying, oh, no, we haven't looked at the information security angle. And it was it was it was just tying up those human motivations with this process. And well, actually, let's put that in the finance function because they want the money, and we want to give them it. But we want to make sure we're giving them it, and they've understood the risk. And for me, that worked absolutely amazingly well. And it didn't require actually any form of education and awareness around third party um, policy in the sense that people were like, okay, we want the money. What is this? Uh, right, let's get it done. And then it it became a poise of going. We've got to do this, otherwise we're just going to get pushed back and we're going to be, you know, a month, two months behind where we want to be as, as a department. So I found that really interesting. And, and I think this is the thing that I always try sharing with people. The behaviours we want can be influenced by the design of the processes as well. And good behavioural design is, you know, I think that she needs to be incorporated more in terms of how we develop these processes in the first place. And I, I think it then takes the pressure off education and awareness campaigns in that more traditional sense and it means that you're not necessarily focusing using up time uh, that way because it's already embedded within the organization's process yeah and i think you're right and, and, and if it's clear to people what it is you, you want them to do I and mean, often often we tell our story by theoretical process or key um activity but actually what we don't do is we don't say what does that mean for you what what exactly do you need to do and if if you're if you know what you need to do can you then self-assess the fact that you're actually doing the right thing and, and be confident that you're doing the right thing yeah so i think in in hillary's uh, interview one of the things she mentioned was the importance humans place upon this uh, a need for control that, uh, you know, our brains actually like to have this sense to predict what's coming up sort of next. And there's this sort of survival instinct of the brain and how that dictates our ability to respond to change. Because really, education awareness is, it's about, would you agree? It's about, you know, changing things, increasing the levels of awareness, increasing the likelihood of an appropriate behaviour. Would you say that that's that's a true reflection of what education awareness is about? Yeah, I suppose at the end of the day, if what we're trying to do from from a security awareness perspective is change behaviour, then we're looking at change. And it it is that piece that Hillary was talking about, um, that people need to understand what that change is and, and, and why it's why it's being implemented and what it is that they need to do um, throughout that process. I think people feel threatened by change, by habit generally. Humans don't like change. Yeah. Um, we, we're generally quite happy with the status quo and when change is forced upon us, we're too busy looking at um, what we're going to give up rather than what we can achieve. 
and what the benefits of the change are. So those are key things that people need to focus on. Um, and we all, we always try and focus on when we're trying to get that across to people. It's not just an awareness message that we deliver. It's actually what's, what is the behavior that we want you to do, which is potentially a change from what you're already doing. And, and why is it that we want you to do that? You know, what's the benefit of that? Yeah. And by, through that process that you, in effect, what you're doing is you're giving people a sense of control over the, um, the, the, the change process in itself. Because I think one of the things that Hilary sort of highlighted and I completely, completely agree with her on this is a sense of when people don't, when people know there's something happening, but they don't know what that something is, they feel more out of control that and that being out of control just increases your levels of anxiety and stress and 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 that then as as you were talking about earlier that then has an impact upon your ability to to reason and to and to you know cognitively think things through so the the process you're talking about it, it is about empowering people it's about giving them that sense of uh, control over over the situation to a certain degree or at least knowing what the situation is rather than not knowing anything yeah absolutely uh, and and you know you know it comes back to what you were saying earlier and actually what also hillary was talking about is the fact that if we don't do that then what we're doing is we're creating um we're creating a, a condition in which we are promoting anxiety, stress, um, people will feel threatened. Um, they, they won't be in a, p- a position of clear mind to actually take that time to stop and think about what it is that we want them to do to make that change. They, they will re- essentially, we can say either revert to type or revert, revert to what it is that they are already doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they'd be, they won't buy into that change. Uh, and, that then is going to create an issue. It's going to create an issue. And, of course, one of the things we've got as a problem in organisations in this day and age is that change is constant. And we, we seem to, if we look at the change cycle, we don't seem to to ever get towards the end. We seem to go, <laughs> we seem to go through. If we, if we consider the, the, the house of change with our, with our four, four rooms to go through, we get through three and then jump over the fourth one and jump back into room one again to, to carry on the whole cycle again. Yeah. So it creates an awful lot of anxiety and, and stress in, in a workplace. And it also doesn't allow us to to stop and actually whether measure whether or not we've, we've been effective with that change, which, again, comes back to the individual looking and thinking, well, you asked me to do this. I've started to do that, but now you're asking me to do this. Yeah. It creates massive conflict. Now, this is a, a, a great point. I'm going to drop, drop this question in because really what you were moving on to there is metrics which is uh, like a hot topic of mine but i think it also ties back to the point you were making earlier about um Stephen covey and he was talking about you know in effect setting your objectives right at yeah. the beginning yeah and that's something that has been mentioned i, I, I think it was in susan and stella's uh, were also me- mentioning that um having a clear set of objectives before you start out on that journey. And it's interesting because when, when I speak to organizations, one of the challenges we have there is often there is, a, you know, education awareness manager comes on or, an, or a CISA comes in, they're looking at um, education awareness and they want to deliver something relatively quickly because they want to show progress. But actually that doesn't really give you the time to actually sit down, really think these things through so that you're very clear about the objectives. And the other thing is, you know, I. I can have my own set of objectives, but really are my objectives are the same as the business's or, uh, objectives. 
And actually that process of having those conversations with the stakeholders to even define what you mean by awareness. Um, what is it you mean by behavior? What is it you mean by culture? And, and actually that process of going through those things actually then starts to defi- uh, help people with painting the picture around metrics. What's your experience in terms of metrics, you know, around what difference it makes to making your job uh, easier in terms of getting the support you need within the organization? It doesn't make your job easier in terms of because you've got to, that's something, something else you've got to be doing. But how important is the setting the objectives, the metrics, and how does gathering metrics effectively against those objectives enable you to sort of put your case forward that you're making good progress and that um, the next round of investment would be a wise investment? Yeah, I think this is this is one that um, um, none of us are alone in in the security awareness industry because actually one of the most difficult things, whilst we can have training metrics of saying, yes, 95% of people have completed all their security training, what we find it very difficult to do, and that's generally because it is a difficult thing to do, is measure the impact on the behaviour. And actually, we can say they've done the training, but actually, are they still doing it operationally? Mm. So having an operational metrics um, and operational metrics that um, align to the um, the risks that we see in the business. So if, if we, we look at our strategy and from a security perspective and identify what our risks are, then if those those are our key risks that we need to be focusing on, then the behaviours that are linked to the controls of those risks yeah. are what we need to be focusing on to show that we can demonstrate are happening. So if, if we set those out as our end goal, that's what we want to see. We want to see people behaving this way. We want to see that, and that's going to feed into having less incidents in this, and it's going to feed into a positive security culture because we're saying that actually if they're behaving that way, then they're obviously understanding or they have the right values, then we can demonstrate that we have got positive security um, culture. Mm -hmm. If we know what that looks like to start with, then that's what we set out as our objectives. And it means that those are objectives that we have half a chance of trying to achieve so that when we try and push to the senior leadership to say, this is what our program is doing and this is how we know we're making an impact, um, it's going to get that message across and it's going to help with getting funding to continue the program. When it comes to metrics, is the performance of an activity, so doing what you said you were going to do, a metric in itself or is it about always just measuring the output from that activity so you know if we do x we're going to that's going to result in y so I, i'm interested in this because one sort of demonstrates effort the other one demonstrates result and and i just look at that from from for me with my legal legal background for many years ago that you know in terms of trying to evidence because we all I think we widely accept that there is going to be a breach at some point in time in any organization and part of that is about being resilient and understanding how you're going to basically evidence the fact that you did take reasonable and appropriate steps and part of that is about evidencing it and that's partly what metrics is about and I'm just wondering whether or not you you, you have any feelings that whether or not just the performance of something and evidencing it is a metric in itself? No, that's a good question. Because I suppose the the point would be is 
what is that met? What are we using that metric for? And if it's if it if it is for evidencing from a legal perspective, or if we've been asked following an incident from an organizer from the ICO, for instance, and we're asking, did they receive the training? Yes, they did. Okay, fine, we can say that we've done that. But if we're showing that we've done the training, or we've delivered the training, and the the individual has done that but actually there's still an incident has come off the back of that yeah these things are always going to happen yeah. and you you can't you can't look at an organization and a, and, a, and a program's effectiveness on isolated incidents there needs to be a trend when you start to see the trend then you can then deal with that and i think that's where by setting the metrics at an, an acceptable uh, tolerance level mm. gives you an indication as to whether or not you have an issue that you need to deal with, yeah. and whether it's a training one or whether it's an operational one. And I think if, if you can demonstrate that, yes, what the intention is, um, and this is where you come back to your legal process, where you can demonstrate that you've followed reasonable process, is that if, you, if you're doing what regulation is asking you to do, you're doing what scheme is asking you to do, you can demonstrate that you've done that. You Yes, you're going to have incidents because we're always going to have incidents and nobody's fallible and accidents do happen, for instance. As long as you can demonstrate there isn't a trend and where a trend is developing, you're using that metric to say we've responded by doing some deep dive in that area or we've delivered some um, additional training. Yeah. Then I think, I think the whole the whole thing works. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I suppose it depends on what you what the metric is for and its purpose. But for me, by having a training and an operational metric and responding to trends rather than incidents, they should work for you. Okay, that's great. So, yeah, Craig, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed that. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, but we do have to bring this to an end. Lois, thanks for having me. Hi there, and I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Craig. I knew that it was going to be a really interesting chat with his background being so diverse, you know, his experience of L&D and training within the context of the armed forces, which got a very own specific culture and environment, the work with European Space Agent. I mean, what a great opportunity. <laughs> um, and it's so critical. It's so, so critical. That was a, a great opportunity for Craig. And then how he's sort of bringing that along, both those two experiences, and then he's now doing that and he's integrating that what he's learned in the Nationwide Building Society and as their education and awareness manager. But it's still absolutely fascinating with all that experience to hear him talk about things that he lessons and things that he's picking up from the podcast. And in this case, it was, you know, podcast interviews with uh, Stella Collins, Hilary Scala and Susan Wineshack. So if you haven't listened to those, I strongly recommend that you, you go and listen to those podcasts. So if you enjoyed the show, I really do hope that you did enjoy the show. And this is the first time we've listened to the show. Then what's the best way for you to be able to stay informed about what we're doing here at the Rethinking Human Factor podcast? Best way probably is to either subscribe via um, your podcast provider, for example, iTunes, or to visit the marmalinebox.com website and go to the podcast tab and you can subscribe there as well. Another way which you might find more attractive is to actually join the Rethinking Human Factor LinkedIn group, which opened up officially two weeks ago. And we started to accept members. And we're at that 
group is going to be used to you know, create discussion, exchange ideas, but also uh, as a platform to make people aware of uh, the work that we're doing here at the podcast, what the latest podcast is, what the future podcasts are going to be, uh, what sort of topics we're going to cover. Uh, but it's also going to be a platform where we're going to be sharing uh, research. And just to let you know that in April, we're due to release a research paper, uh, which we've done with our new partner, uh, the Sabon University in Paris. And that's going to be looking at embedding information security into business systems. And that's basically based upon interviews over the last three years, which we've done via a series of workshops, one-to-one interviews and surveys as well. And I think it presents an interest. It's starting to look like it's presenting an interesting picture of the state of affairs. And we'll be releasing that in, I believe, April, end of April. So, you know, we'll keep you informed of those things as they come along. Now, if you want to come on the show, if you want to be like Craig, you know, invited onto the show and come and talk about what you've learned in the last three podcasts, but also bring some insights yourself, best way for you to do that, let me just remind you, is podcast at rethinkingthehumanfactor.com. Re-thinkingthehumanfactor.com. Drop us a mail. We'll set up a call with you and uh, we'll look to see whether or not we can get you uh, scheduled into the show to come and share your insights. Before you go, I just want to share with you that my program of delivering training, workshops and events for 2019 has now been fully launched. And the first couple of uh, workshops that I will be running will be in London and then I believe Brussels and then I believe Edinburgh. uh, And that's all going to be happening March, April and May of this year. If you're interested in attending any of the workshops and sort of being challenged when it comes to education and awareness, then um, one of the things you do, go to the marmalobox.com website, have a look at the training tab, and underneath that you'll find a load of stuff in terms of what we're up to in courses and locations and information about those courses. If you've got any inquiries, then the best thing to do is give us a call um, on the contact details on the website or pop me an email at bruce.halas at marmalobox.com. Right, so... Who do we have on the show next? Well, the next person we've got on the show is led by the name of Charles Sample. If, uh, if you've listened to the last podcast, you'll know I really made it very, very clear that you've got to listen to this, this podcast with Charles Sample. All our guests are brilliant, but Charles um, is, is bringing a very different angle in the context of culture. And it's the reason why Char and I were introduced to each other, I don't know, maybe two years ago, because we had this shared uh, theory um, Charles gone off and explored that from a research perspective, and she's going to be sharing some of those insights. Uh, and they are really, you know, they do challenge how we consider culture. So I strongly recommend that you stay tuned to that particular one that comes out, which will be in about two or three weeks. Okay, right. Well, um, on a final note, I just want to thank everybody for joining us on the show. I really hope that you found it of some value. As always, I've thoroughly enjoyed bringing a new guest to you. And I look forward to joining you in a couple of weeks. Bye.